Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today for our season one finale of Saving Face. I'm Ida, and I'll be your host today. After eight weeks of hearing important, moving stories, we are so excited to wrap up this journey with you. Throughout this season, we asked eight creatives to dive into some of their most difficult personal experiences, many of which are often rooted in trauma and shame. We had some very hard conversations, dug deep into our past, and learned a ton of life lessons along the way. I'm extremely honored to close out this season of sharing hard-to-tell stories with our very own audio engineer, Matt Hong. Yeah, my name is Matt Hong. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm a musician, product marketer, um, and also the audio engineer for this very podcast that you're listening to. Outside of Saving Face, Matt makes soft, nostalgic music that instantly transports you to another world. His most recent project, a collaboration with Melbourne-based producer Pastels, was an enticing combination of melodic jazz and catchy bossa nova amid a backdrop of ambient cafe background noise. Yeah, back in December, released a record called Cafe PM. It was a collaboration with a musician down in Melbourne, Australia. Her name is Annie. She goes by the name Pastels. We actually met each other through a Facebook group called the Asian Creative Network dug each other's sounds, and then started making music together. We launched the first part of Cafe PM called Cafe AM back in May of last year. Then figured we wanted to bring it back, do it again. That was the last record we did. The whole story about it is really, in this quarantine, we've been missing, you know, nightlife, going Mm -hmm. out to see a show, go to a bar, you know, get some drinks, hang out, get a late night burrito, all those things about the late night, we've really been missing. So we wanted to pay homage to it. And so we designed our album, Cafe PM, to be about a night out, right? And you know that you always go bar hopping on a night out or, you know, you always go to multiple places. So it starts at one one place, right? But you have no idea where the night is going to take you. And you just, each track, you're kind of hopping from one place to another. So we wanted to bring that bar hopping experience to us here at home since, you know, obviously with the pandemic, can't really do that right now. So it was a really fun record for us to pull together. You know, we had like, I think 30 or so people involved in the project. Wow. This is a completely vocal project. Yeah, we got a bunch of our friends to help out with mixing and mastering as well, as well as artwork. Just a whole whole big celebration, I think, of a lot of the nightlife and things that we've been missing in the pandemic. Matt's project took listeners on a journey. It began at the beginning of a new adventure, as two protagonists who might like each other hop from happy hour to dollar oyster to their neighborhood bar on one of those perfect nights out that many of us are hoping to return to soon. His record tried to replicate that feeling, something he also tried to make happen at home throughout the pandemic. My girlfriend and I, we have dance parties in the house, right? And like, you know, we try and figure out some other way to to celebrate, right? And just trying to bring people into that state of mind, right? Like you're actually at a salsa bar right now, or, you know, you're actually at a 24-hour diner, or you're actually at a Korean bar, right? Like ordering soju shots. We wanted to create that experience as much as we could for each of the tracks. We found out actually it charted in like Vietnam. It reached like number 59 in iTunes on Vietnam. So to all of our Vietnamese listeners, thank you so much. Really appreciate your support (laughs) there. Yeah, found out about it yesterday. We were like super stoked about it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I feel like we often forget that like America is not, you know, everything it's so i think it's really interesting whenever i have these like more global reminders that like your art resonates with 
this other community of people. Yeah, I think it's I think it's charting there because like they can actually go out to the clubs there. You know, they actually took COVID seriously, and you know, <laughs> they're bumping these tracks. So that's that's my feeling at least. Um, it's a it's a good sign, right? Matt was born and raised in the Bay Area. He spent most of his life in the Fremont and Hayward area. For people who aren't aware, that's where the Tesla factory is. That's probably the biggest thing that was going on in Fremont for for a really long time. He summarizes his upbringing as pretty great. He had parents that supported him in whatever he wanted to do, but also pushed him to stay connected with his Chinese roots. Of course, me being, you know, growing up in America, I was like, you know, I kind of want to like just play basketball on the weekends or, you know, like hang out with my friends and not really care too much about my my heritage as much. (laughs) But I think later now, you know, looking back, I really appreciate the fact that my parents tried so hard to immerse me into Chinese culture, right? I'm really proud to say that I can read and write in Chinese. I don't think there's a lot of people of my generation that can do that right now. And I'm super thankful that my parents were able to give me that opportunity, right? And to actually teach me that. That's something that I think like now going to Asia, every time that I go back, I think it's great that, you know, I can read signs and, you know, actually talk to people and connect with people who are of the same heritage and culture as I am, but have a completely different upbringing than I do. He tells me that much of his determination is modeled after his parents' own work ethic. So I have an older sister, right? She's about five years older than me. And when she was born, my mom made the decision to become a full-time mom. And so what that meant too is like my dad had to work like 2x, 3x harder than he was before. And so for majority of my childhood, my memories of my dad was like he was just always working. Um, and he got a lot of his business and a lot of his work was in Asia, right? Because, you know, granted, that's where he was from. So for a majority of my adolescence, I would say my dad would only be around for maybe three months at most every year. So I didn't really get to see him that much. It doesn't mean that I didn't have a good relationship with my dad, but I definitely was a lot closer to my mom, right? And I think my mom taught me a lot about patience, right? A lot about taking care of myself and really just trying to find a sense of purpose, right? I mean, she's definitely a huge role model for me, right? Coming from Taiwan, her side of the family had, you know, a lot of trials and tribulations they needed to get through to get to America, from escaping, you know, communist China to, you know, all the issues of creating a, a whole country, right? All these different things that they go on, she passed that on to me and trying to round myself out a little bit more. Matt ultimately went to and graduated from UC Berkeley, alleviating his parents' fears that he might face some of the same struggles that they had growing up. I think that would have been really hard for me to have had a father that wasn't around for so much of my childhood. Though I guess my dad was not really around. He he was kind of around. <laughs> I think like like what you're describing where he's literally not in the country is like super different. I don't know. Did you feel kind of like that distance a lot growing up? I, you said your relationship was good, but I'm just wondering how that felt. Yeah, it was, I think it was good because we knew that, you know, one, he, although we didn't know when he was going to come back, right, we knew what his purpose was as to why he was in Asia, right? It was to like provide for our family financially, you know, making sure that we had everything that we wanted to some, to some extent, right? But in 2019, something happened that made Matt's father regret his decision of being so far away for so long. In 2019, my older sister, she actually passed away. And so a lot of the feelings that my dad's feeling right now is 
kind of a little bit of guilt, right? And a little bit of regret for being away for so long in these formative years. In 2018, Matt's sister developed brain cancer. Over the next year and a half, he and his family went through rounds and rounds of chemo, treatment, and turmoil. Matt remembers it as a very traumatic time now, especially because of how unexpected it was. In May 22nd, 2018, my sister had a stroke. So that was kind of the catalyst and we we had no idea what was going on at that point. But she basically lost most function on the left side of her of her body, right? So so the stroke was on the right. And so at the time, cancer wasn't even on our minds, right? Like we thought, oh, it was just a stroke, one in like a bajillion chance that something like this happened. It was probably like something pushed on a nerve or in a blood vessel and, and just caused it. This could be the end of the story. They got out everything that they needed to. She's going to be fine. We're just going to put her on like stroke recovery, right? Mm-hmm. And her functions were coming back and stuff. Yeah. So like I remember like crying out of joy when she could eat ice again. You know, crying out of joy when she could, like, move her left arm, when she could walk. It was a lot of these experiences that we take for granted so often, but it really, like, I was just bawling my eyes out because I was like, holy shit, this is incredible, right? Like, she was in the ICU for probably, I think, like, two or three weeks, right? And and during that time when, when I went down there, because this was all happening in L.A., that's where my sister was living at the time. I just remember like that whole, those whole two weeks were like the longest two weeks of my life, right? Mm-hmm. And then fast forward to about January of 2019, they found out that, yeah, there was, there was cancer um, and it was a cancer cell that caused the stroke to happen. Uh. So we started, you know, doing chemotherapy treatments. Mm-hmm. Some of them had some good success, but the side effects were just way too hard. You know, and given, let me tell you something too. I mean, my sister at the time, she was 29 and she was like, you know, easily one of the most healthiest people I knew, right? Mm -hmm. She's in LA, right? She's all about that health food craze, all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it was just crazy that, you know, just to see, you know, how, how weak she got at that point. We did some like additional surgeries, right? To try and help her. But, you know, the chemotherapy treatments were going really as we thought they would. So in about April of that year, we found out that it had spread from the brain into into the spine. And that's usually kind of a pretty bad sign because, you know, from the spine, it's really easy for them to get into organs and, you know, into a lot of different places. And so sister, she was the fighter, right? She was like, you know what? I'm still going to fight this. But there weren't really many chemotherapy treatments out there at the time, ones that were, you know, available from the FDA. So she's like, fuck it. Give me, let me see what the, you know, what clinical trials are out there. You know, like she was so determined to fight to the very end. And same thing happened, right? They were showing promising results. But at that point, the cancer had kind of, you know, spread way, you know, pretty far. And so it was difficult, you know, also on her body, right, to to take all this treatment. Mm -hmm. And then that was for about like two or three months. And then at this point, I took a leave of absence from work just to spend more time with family um, and also to help around in the house and, you know, be there with my sister. You know, we played Kingdom Hearts 3 together. That game finally came out. And I remember we were playing that. I brought my Switch over and we would play games together, watch TV, watch One Punch Man, 
all sorts of stuff. But in October, I believe, no, I think it was in September, she kind of decided to stop treatment. It was it was just a little too much. I mean, th- I mean, because chemo's just like they're just taking a guess, right? They're just guessing that they're gonna kill all your cells or a few cells, and just hope that they get the cancer cells well, right? And right. so you know, at that point, she wanted to end you know end treatment and really just focus on you know being comfortable, being okay, you know, seeing friends, seeing family, all that, um, and then. Yeah, I mean, she she basically fought to the end. I mean, it's she was dealing with a real aggressive, really aggressive cancer. I remember on you know basically her last day, you know, just being there. Um, it was like nine or ten p.m. at night. My dad was been, was already asleep, and we would take turns at night, kind of just watching her and making sure. One of the biggest things we wanted to see is like if she. We don't want her to like cough you know, cough and like choke on her own saliva. And so we would have like one of the three of us or four of us, our aunt was with us at that time. Um, just kind of watch her for the first like couple hours as she's sleeping. And then I don't remember what I was doing, probably making music or something, you know, just, just sitting there. Um, my mom comes down stairs, looks at my sister and she just, you know, looks up at me and it's like, she's not breathing. I remember the window was open and I was trying to convince my mom that, no, she's still breathing. Because, like, look, her blanket is still moving up and down. Mm. You know, like, oh, she's still breathing. I think she's still breathing, right? Like, I just cannot accept the fact that, you know, that she had passed. She wasn't breathing. We, you know, at that point, they kind of hook you up with, like, a hospice nurse. And you call them when, when she passes, right? I just remember, like, trying to go to sleep that night. You know, our family was doing some... I wouldn't say we were Buddhist, but we had like a Buddhist practice where when the person passes, you put a sheet over them, right? And then you have to recite some scriptures, you know, and some chants um, until the, I think like 12 hours after, right? To kind of help the spirit go into the spirit world, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was between like 11 p.m. and 11 a.m. And we had people come from like a local or, you know, nonprofit organization. We had some of our family friends come in and I was just so blown away also by just how willing people were to come at like two, three in the morning and like chant, right. Mm -hmm. To help. So yeah, I just, that, that image, you know, and that, that whole 12 hours is like always, always in my mind. Matt's sister's passing affected him and his family deeply. So she was five years older than me. Um, so basically from when she was like eight to 18, he didn't see her around as much, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that he regrets a lot is, you know, he should have just been around here, right? Was it really necessary for him to go to Asia or should he? So I think if anything, it's been a lot harder on him than it is on us as the kids, right? Obviously, we understood why mm-hmm. he was there. And I think we had such a strong mom um, I'm not going to speak for my sister, but I know like for for us, we definitely like love our mom, right? And really understood that, you know, she could play both roles, right? That she was strong enough to be both parents in a sense, right? Right, um, right. Yeah, but that's definitely something that, you know, it's a great question because I think now a lot of the conversations I have with my parents now, or specifically with my dad, is a lot about that time period, right? He asks me, you know, do you think I did enough for you as a father, Right. Was it right for me to go to Asia? All these things. 
And I keep trying to, you know, assure him that, like, you know, you made the right decision at that time, right? And it was the best decision for our family. For you know, it was a selfless decision. But of course, you know, he has his own his own thoughts and his own awareness about about that whole situation. Given now, he knows. Oh, during that time, those were like my children were growing up. All these things were happening, and、mm-hmm. he didn't really get to experience that. You know. Well, I think that that is so special, though, that you and your dad can have conversations like that, especially like. So openly, I think that's very rare、mm-hmm. um, in cultures like ours to be able to access. Like my father personally, you know, has gotten better over the years too with like things like this, where I can ask him hard questions. I ask the hard questions though, and then he will kind of like engage with me. But the fact that your father is kind of like taking the initiative on this is really,、mm-hmm. really special and unique. I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, right? I think. Just having that traumatic experience, right? And I think that was the time where we realized, as a family unit, that you know we couldn't just be, we couldn't just hold secrets anymore. Every second mattered so much. We didn't know what was going to happen the next day, right? Was this treatment going to work? You know, is my sister going to feel better, right? Are we going to be okay, right? Like, what's going to happen? We have no control over that, right? But what we do have control over is like how we communicate with one another, how we tell each other how we're feeling, right? Because that's really, I think, the important piece. That you know, growing up, I never really heard my mom or my dad, you know, say like fears that they have, right, or struggles that they're going through, right? Like they'll just take everything and say like, oh, everything's okay, right? Like oh, don't worry about it, right? Like oh, we're handling it, and you never, you never really know until it's like something that serious. But I think growing out of it. Growing out of that that you know traumatic experiences, now we're definitely a lot more open with one another, right? Like, it's a super small example, but my mom was telling me, you know, like when I went to go visit her, she's like, "I feel like you know my knees aren't as strong enough, right?" And those are words that like I would never hear my mom say before, right? I knew she wanted to put up this facade that you know she was strong, and it's just kind of reassuring. I think it also sets my expectation right that there are people too. And that we can have this open communication, right, and really talk about how we're feeling, and because I think that's you know that's something that, like I said, right, we we didn't really have much of that growing up, and all the problems, right, were just put you know pushed under the rug for better or worse. But now we can kind of see everything for what it is and take it all, you know, accept responsibility if we need to, and you know, kind of just move forward from that. How did that affect you, kind of like, in the moments after, and I guess in the year after? I felt like my role in the family, because I'm the youngest of my family, and youngest meaning like of my of my generation of first cousins. I'm also the youngest,、um, and I'm also the only guy. So like all my cousins are female. You know, my I had a sister, right? She's female too, right? Like、oh. I was the only only guy. Um, and so I would often be like either the butt of the jokes or I would be the joker. You know, like I'd、mm-hmm. like put whoopee cushions on my uncle. You know, when we had like family meetings or like family gatherings, I put whoopee cushions on like my uncle's chair, right, and like do like dumb shit like that. And so I felt like when you know, obviously when I saw my parents in this mode, I thought that was my you know, I try to make that my role. I would always try and make my sister laugh, right? Like you know, they say laughter is the best medicine. I, that's all I would try and do, right?、I、stick my tongue out at her, you know, like. 
make funny faces, tell her funny jokes. You know, we'd watch the same Eric Andre clip that we both love, right? Like do things like that. And I would do that with my parents too, right? And just try and cheer up and, you know, lighten the mood. So I felt that when she passed, my role was just, okay, anything my parents need, I'ma just do it, right? Like, I don't want to see him suffer, right? Springing quickly into action, Matt helped plan his sister's memorial. We decided to have her cremated, and we decided to have her ashes scattered in uh, Land's End Trail, which is, you know, her favorite trail in San Francisco, right? But getting the right permits and figuring out all the logistics left Matt with very little time to process. But before he got a chance to rest and sit with what had happened, Matt's grandpa passed away three weeks later. And so I just remember that one week where we had our memorial for Jia, for my sister, Jia, right? Like older sister and and my grandpa and going from like one funeral to the next and just thinking like, what, you know, like what the fuck is going on? At this point, like everything's planned out, right? So I think I finally had a breath and a chance to kind of think about what just happened in the last three weeks, right? And even the last year and a half. And, you know, of course, in the beginning, it was definitely a lot of denial, right? I mean, I was even denying when when she actually passed, right? I thought the window was blowing, blowing, blowing wind, you know, air in and she was still breathing, you know. So it was it was definitely really difficult to to take it in. You know, this is my sister. She's she was like as much as my mom raised me, I like to think that my sister raised me as well, right? She got me into music. She bought me my first record player, right? She looked out for me. She right. you know, read my college essays and gave feedback. She was my hype man, right? When I was making music, starting to make music, she would critique and listen to every single beat. She was really out there for me. And so when she left, it it kind of felt like, you know, I didn't have that kind of person, right? Like that confidant anymore, right? That person who was always looking out for me. But I realized, you know, there were plenty of people who really cared, but I just didn't open up to them. During the entire course of my sister's illness, I probably only told like two of my friends. Wow. If if any, right? Like I kept this really under wraps because it felt like I've always been on the type that like, I don't want to tell people my struggles or, you know, what's stressing me out because, you know, I don't want to add another negative thing to to someone's plate. Right. And that was just always like my, how I would be. It's like, you know, like I wouldn't want to tell people about it, but I realized, right. Like I, I, I can't be in this position to help other people either until I make sure that I'm doing okay. Right. And that like, I can, I can deal with these things. Right before I try and help someone else out. And so really for this year, I mean, granted, I think this pandemic kind of threw another curveball, right? Uh, we were looking forward to like a lot of traveling and we were able to travel, which was good. So like in January of 2020, right before pandemic and everything started closing down, my girlfriend and I went to Barcelona and we to South Africa, right? Really got to like kind of escape all the things that were going on here, right? Mm-hmm. And just take, you know, I really needed to just take a break and not have to think too much about it. But yeah, the pandemic has kind of made it easier, I would say, in some respect for me to internalize, you know, think a little bit more about what it is that I want to get out of my life and really appreciate the fact of all the people, you know, my parents included, like I have so much respect for my parents, so much. Right. Because, you know, I don't think it's, no parent should have to see their kid pass, you know, before them, you know, and just to have to go through that, like, 
I want to like do everything for them, you know? Right. Well, I feel like that event, like as hard as it was, and I'm so sorry, you know, that you and all your family had to go through that because it sounds just so difficult. But that event, (laughs) I feel like opened up this opportunity, like you were talking about the beginning for you to really connect with not just your friends and those around you, but also your parents on this like much deeper level, right? And like (laughs) you started creating these foundations in your family that go so much deeper than like the surface level conversations we have like and it forces us to ask like the really important questions when as you say like you don't know how much time there is like you don't know really what's going to happen and because of that you don't want to waste any moment you know what I mean it's definitely yeah silver lining for sure right like Obviously, this is like such a sucky, sucky way to learn this lesson, but it is such an important lesson to learn. My parents always tell me like, oh, we feel so bad, right? That I had this experience to me. I had this experience while I was so young, right? Like Mm. my dad was telling me like he didn't even know anyone who passed away until he was like in his 40s. And for me at that point, I've had a few friends in high school and college who have, you know, either taken their own life or passed for, you know, illnesses or whatnot. And of course, with my sister too, like a lot, death has been a really sizable part of my early 20s and my my late teens too. And I was thinking like, you know, I think it's kind of I wouldn't say a good thing, but I mean, I'm trying to just look at the positive side is like, like you said, right? It gives you more chance to figure out what it is that I want to do with the rest of my life, right? I don't want to be doing something that I don't want to do. You know, I don't, if, if it's, if I don't think that I'm, you know, spending my time well, or if I'm not being surrounded by the people who support me or want to be around me, then it's like, you can get all the money in the world, but the only thing that you can't get back is time right? Like you can get everything else in the world, but time is the one thing that's just going to keep on going. Right. And so I think that, you know, learning that lesson at such, you know, at my age now, it really does, you know, affect a lot of the decisions that I make. Right. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think my parents definitely try their best to, to tell me, you know, that, it is still a bad situation. I think that's also one thing that I didn't do too much about is like, I always try to flip it into being, no, there's a silver lining or like, no, there's a positive to this. But there are just some things that are just like shitty, right? you know? And I think it's just being okay to accept that some things are shitty, right? And that there's gonna be things like this that happen and you don't know when it's gonna happen or what, what it's gonna be, but just being okay with that, accepting it, learning from it and, really try to, you know, support yourself and other people who've been affected by it. And then kind of just moving on and understanding that it is a facet of life that we have to have to deal with. Right, right, of course. And like, leaving space for it to be what it is. I think that is so valuable. And like, we do, I think all of us, like as humans, a lot of us try to make things feel better or sound better. And really, like the more courageous thing to do a lot of the times is just to sit with the bad and be like, yeah, actually this is total shit. (laughs) 
and like, there's nothing else to do here. You know, it's like, let me just process this and sit with this, even kind of like in what you're describing and like the months after where you were so busy and like doing so many things, cause it feels better than really just like sitting and like letting it wash over you. Like really how terrible this is, you know, but you really like have to do that step. I found in my experience to be able to move forward because Otherwise, it just comes back years later and is like, hey, yeah. <laughs> remember me? <laughs> it's true, though, right? Like, I think I think back a lot about that, right? Like, it, it'll just come back if you don't really take the time to, to acknowledge its existence, right? If you try right. to flip it as something else, like, you're just lying to yourself in some respect, right? Like, you're you're not giving yourself the ability to tell yourself the truth. But even beyond his sister's passing death has actually been a part of Matt's life for some time. His first poignant experience with it was in his teens, back when he was still in high school. The story that he tells me starts in elementary school, where he made a group of friends that lived relatively far from him since they all went to a private school. We had a group of about, like, I'd say like eight to ten of us. You know, we go to each other's birthday parties and we stayed relatively close. But for high school, my parents wanted me to go to public school. His parents made him attend a public high school after graduation, and Matt was worried that he'd have trouble fitting in or making friends since he hadn't gone to school in the area. Even in the first year or so, I would like still, you know, regularly text my friends from middle school, so on and so forth. So I still had like a pretty good relationship with them. You know, of course, over time though, right, like I just became, or I just made better, you know, not better, but closer relationships with people in high school, right? You share the same classes, you know, you see each other out after school, playing playing sports and whatnot. Um, and so, like, you know, I didn't spend very much time with um, my friends in middle school, right? And also, they were just far, right? 45 minutes away. But one day, during his junior year, something happened. Um, I get a call. I remember really distinctly, I was in English class. And this was back when, like, you know, cell phones definitely were looked down upon in school and like nobody had an iPhone or anything yet. So I remember I thought I was hot shit because I had like a Motorola droid or like one of those like really early like smartphones. So like you could tech, you could like go on the internet and like, you know, do shit like that. And I got like a Facebook message, I think, or I got a call first. I didn't silence my phone. So like immediately, (laughs) like everyone could hear it. I think, I don't think it was a test, but you know, like everyone was pretty silent. So I was like, oh shit right? Turned it off, like, and pretended to tell the teacher, like, okay, I turned it off, you know, the phone's off, everything's good. Sitting in the back, of course. And and then I get a Facebook message from one of my friends from middle school, and, and she's like, can you talk now, right? And I'm like, you know, it's kind of out of the blue, right? So I don't think too much of it. Class ends. It's luckily the last period of, of uh, school, so, you know, it's after school now. And I call my friend back, and she's just, like, straight up sobbing. Right, and I just remember her first words is like, you know, Jackie died. Um, And I was like, what the fuck, right? Jackie was um, a girl in our group that I took to our eighth grade promotion dance. And we stayed pretty close, like, afterwards. She was always, like, really good at math. And so I would always send her, like, math questions and, like, ask for help. And, you know, like, Back then, I made like mixtapes and like stuff for all of our friends, right? So like I would I would always send her songs and you know like all, all this kind of stuff, and I was just like floored, you know. I was like, what the fuck, right? I remember my mom picked me up from school, right? 
the same day. And then I just like the first things out of my mouth was like, hey, mom, like Jackie died. Right. And and she was like, what? You know, like as she's driving me home, I don't really remember what happens after that. But I know that one of my middle school friends actually did live in Fremont. And so we met up afterwards, like we went to a boba bar or, you know, like a boba shop or something. We met up at like 8 p.m. and like, you know, obviously hugged, chopped it up, right? Like caught up and of course, you know, like try to support one another, right? And, you know, it really fucked with me, right? Like I obviously like being being there, it got me a lot, again, same thing, right? Like it got me a lot closer with my friends in middle school and like reconnected, but it, you know, really, really just took, took the wind out of me. I feel like that is another instance where, I don't know, you're so young at that point and you seemed really close to this person, right? Like it wasn't just somebody you heard about like at school because I feel like that's a little bit, I mean, I've experienced that at least where it's like someone I knew of, like an acquaintance or someone I've interacted with a couple of times. But this is someone like in your core friend group back in middle school, right? That this is happening with. Yeah. I, how did you process this instance? Like I'm, I'm wondering, like, was it different from the time that your sister passed away? The way I coped with it was actually how I got my start into making music. I felt like I tried my best to communicate with my parents how I was feeling. My, I think my mom was also trying really hard. And at the time, my sister was already in college, so she wasn't, she wasn't around as much, right? She went to UCLA, so she was down there. And, you know, my dad's out, you know, he's off in Asia. Didn't really know who I could really, you know, open up to and, you know, talk to about this. But we have a piano in our living room. It just felt like at that time, I really didn't like learning piano because I felt like it was something my parents were trying to just push on me. But when I started playing piano after that event, I started to just fall in love with it. It, it just allowed me to express, you know, my emotion, my feeling, something about, you know, using the right pedals and playing the right chords really just allowed me to express myself emotionally when words just couldn't work, mm. you know. And from there, I started making my own music, composing my own songs. Back then, it was mostly, if you can believe it or not, I would do like covers of like Asian songs. You know, or and try to do my own like little spin on it, like tongue like that one. Oh hell yeah! You know that's my jam. Anytime <laughs> karaoke starts up, like that's that's like the number one or two song we put up. Yeah, tonghua. <laughs> yeah, I love that song. Yeah, but yeah, actually, there's probably a recording out there I have on like somewhere in the internet of me playing tonghua on piano and like doing my own rendition towards the end. I would always like learn how to play a song, and then the second mm-hmm. part. After, you know, like you do the chorus and, you know, the verses and everything, I'd like in the same key, I would kind of just like freestyle and try and make another song out of it. And Mm. I think that's really what started my interest in making my own music um, is because I just didn't know how to communicate. But somehow, like through, you know, playing piano and eventually when I started using like GarageBand and Logic and Ableton, um, it allowed me to kind of organize my thoughts a lot better, right? Mm-hmm. And I think to this day, a lot of my music is 
trying to put you in a in the same place mentally that I was when I was making that track, right? That which the very first track that you made, or even to this day, I think that's that's how I my relationship with music is, right? Is like every single song that I'm making, it's an exact representation of how I'm feeling at that moment. Mm, and you want people to be able to understand it and feel the same way as well. Yeah, dude. It and it's you know you know like it's kind of like me sharing a little piece of myself, right, and opening up, right. The thing that I couldn't really do very well with words, you know, even to this day, I'm still trying to learn how to you know voice my own emo, you know, how I'm feeling and all that. But through music, I could, right? I could open up and like I wrote, for example, I think one of my more popular songs, "Bittersweet Chocolate," right, like. I wrote that like three days after my college girlfriend and I split up, right? Mm. And that's exactly how I was feeling at that at that point in time. It was like bittersweet because it's bitter, right? Because it stings and it's a heartbreak, right? And like, but it's sweet because you know, like, it's you know, in in some respect, it was the it was right at the end of end of college, right? So we were straight up graduating in a week. It was also a chance for like kind of a fresh start, right? Obviously, I didn't know that until until way later, but mm-hmm. that was the whole point of that track. Was like I'm feeling such a weird mix of emotions right now. Like this this is this is shitty, but maybe there's some opportunity out there. For Matt, music became more than a way to express his emotions. It was also a kind of living journal. It helped capture what he was feeling at different moments in his life. You said that. That kind of started when you had trouble communicating with your parents. Do they see your music? Do they understand kind of like your music and where that comes from? Yeah, so they, I think now they're actually a lot more warmer. In the beginning, they definitely were like, oh, you know, Matt's having fun with this little keyboard, right? And I'm not trying to like make, you know, demean it or anything. But like, I think they they looked at it as like, oh, this is great. He's finally into music. Because for years, they were like, oh, just go to this one piano lesson, right? They'd always try to coax me to go, you know, learn how to play piano and all this stuff, right? But they they get it. I mean, when my sister passed, I put out a song called Seashells. And for the longest time, I was like debating whether to share it with my parents. For most of my music, in fact, even in our like old, you know, 97, 1997 Land Cruiser, I printed a CD for one of my albums back in, you know, in 2017. And so whenever my mom drives, she's listening to my music, right? Um, So she's, you know, she's always really supportive. She's always like, you know, oh, I like track four, you know, or like, you know, like I love track seven, right? Like I like how you put, you know, the piano this way and you got the drums like this, you know? So she's she's definitely doing like really cute shit about, about my music, right? And really supportive, right? Anytime I, you know, get a interesting or cool like sync deal, right? I let them know, right, and show them, you know, you know, where my music has been, right? Very open. But for this one song, right, because it was, you know, definitely very heartfelt. The song also has a recording of my sister when she's like five or 10 years old. When we disconnected our landline, um, I took a recording of our voicemail message because it was my sister on the voicemail. So she's like really young and she's like saying, you know, like, um, if you'd like to call back, you know, something along those lines, call us back, you know, um, in like a really cute voice, right? Because she's like five years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that if I shared this with my parents, that they would just get, you know, like very sad and, you know, very emotional about it. 
And so I don't tell my parents about this song, right? I share it with, you know, on, with friends. It's on Spotify, SoundCloud, all that stuff, right? Um, and then probably like two months later, you know, my dad calls me, right? And asks me like about the song, right? Like, so he must have heard it from someone. Someone must have sent it to him, right? Mm. Um, and he's like, you know, I've seen my dad, you know, cry a handful of times, right? And, you know, this was one of those moments, you know, where I felt really bad of like, you know, shielding the song from them. Mm. You know, obviously I was like, but he was like, you know, he would listen to it and just hearing the voicemail, right? Like made him feel a lot happier in some respect because he's like, you know, a piece of my sister, like her actual voice is immortalized, like you said, mm. right? that he can hear this recording, right? And kind of just like reconnect with Michelle, you know, with my sister um, in, in another extent, right? And so since then, I've definitely, you know, anytime I make a song, so like for my sister's 30th birthday, I made a song called Softy because uh, she loves, there's this one like ice cream truck we would always go to in Hong Kong called Mr. Softy. <laughs> Super bomb. It's like, I don't know, less than a dollar for ice cream cone, right? And I wanted to like celebrate the fact that, you know, it's her 30, it's the big dirty 30, right? <laughs> um, and so it was a very uplifting song, right? And I had a lot of fun putting it together. And I wanted to share it with, you know, with my parents, right? And like, let them know that, you know, here's how I'm feeling, right? How I, you know, hope that everyone feels about Michelle, right? And to like celebrate her life. And since then, they've been really supportive of any of the music that I make, right? I think for Cafe PM, they were kind of like, I think they're not, they're not of that generation, you know, <laughs> they don't, they don't really get hip hop, right? So like, there's, there's, you know, there's a couple F-bombs and, you know, like a couple swear words and they're like, mm, you know, don't know about that but for the most part they've been really receptive to to the music right right and again like we return to how this event in your life which was so intense and so kind of like necessary to break past these surface level i don't know notions that we just let control our lives all the time like it really broke through all of those strings and I don't know. You guys have access such a deep level of connection to it. So it, it really warms my heart to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I hope, I hope people, you know, other families or people listening, like, I hope they don't have to go through the same level of trauma and the same events that our family had to do to get there. Right. Like, mm -hmm. I think it's just so important, especially cause you know, I think again, right. Like my parents, they didn't grow up in a, in a very open household right in terms of you know again right all in the concept of saving face my dad is his family is like originally from you know the shanghai area of china they the face was like everything to them right, right. Like, straight <laughs> right. up like so so anything like that they would always just talk about in close quarters and never bring it up to the kids and so i think it's a low, slow learning learning journey for them but i think like yeah it's it's definitely made my relationship with them a lot stronger because, you know, they got such a wealth of knowledge, right, and experience. And, you know, if I'm thinking of moving to, you know, a different part of the country or, you know, like doing some sort of big life change, right, they're there with me like every step of the way and like try and, you know, help me out, give advice. Like, 
whether, you know, whether I take it is another thing, but, you mm-hmm. know, knowing again, right, that they're, they're in my corner, right. They're my confidant and, you know, like they, they support me to some degree, right. Of like the things that I'm doing. Well, thank you so much for being here today and joining us. Is there anything else you feel like you would like to say to our listeners? Not really, but honestly, I mean, when, Ida, when you and Belinda were pitching, you know, this idea, I remember probably back in like, what, April? Maybe. (laughs) No, no, no. I think it was like May or something, right? Of last year. I thought this was something that was like super needed, right? Like there's so many stories out there of you know, the Asian American identity and of trauma and of, you know, just there needed to be a space where we could share this. So honestly, I want to just thank the two of you for pulling all this hard work together, right? And giving us again, that platform to talk these things out. Because for me, like, honestly, this has been super therapeutic. And it's given me a lot of lot to think about too, right? Um, And so I really want to thank you guys for for the opportunity as well. I truly can't say enough, but Thank you all so, so much for making it to the end of our first season of Saving Face. I hope that you all enjoyed listening to all of our guests' brave and honest stories as much as I did, and that this series helped break down the stigma that sharing these experiences can bring us shame. Thank you all again for giving us your time, for listening, and of course, thank you for being here. I'm Ida, and it was an honor to move through this season with you. We hope you'll join us again. But until then, take care. Saving Face is brought to you by Newfly Magazine. We'd like to give a special thank you and shout out to Matt Hong, our audio engineer, for making the soundscape for each of our episodes. I'd also like to thank Belinda Mann, who's helped co-produce the series with me, as well as Daniel Fung, who has put together our cover art for each episode. And of course, we'd like to thank our wonderful guests for having the courage and openness to share their stories. Thank you so much for listening.